when someone takes MDMA, can you talk a, a little bit about what is the mechanism and what is actually happening in the body? And then how does that make the patient feel and all of that? Well, the MDMA is going to be indicated differently. It's a psychedelic that is going to be categorized, as I understand it, for PTSD. And so I think the mechanism has, has something to do with serotonin uplift and essentially gives people very, uh, very safe feeling of happiness and, and what the studies, um, and I got I, I've looked at some of the studies, but I have not, I haven't looked at them as carefully as I should, because it's not there yet. It'll be interesting to analyze this last level of studies and, um, see how long is it, how, how long does that feeling last? You know, I think you've probably heard there's, a, there's people making claims like, oh, well, the MDMA reconnects sort of the neural circuitry of the brain. Does it? I know it sounds cool. Does it uh, em- empathogenic or em- empathogen and calm down the amygdala so people can essentially revisit those traumas without having that negative response and deal with it in a calm, like you mentioned, happy yeah. manner? How long does it last? What's the halo effect? I mean, I know in a, in a younger day in my life, I, I did MDMA. And the big problem with it was there was a major crash. And I've seen people and we've studied, you know, we've read about that and studied about that. So the molecule that is, is being advanced is one that will have a, you know, a, a safe liftoff and will continue to go and not have that crash. Then I think the question will be, does this something I have to do every day? Is this med management? Yeah. And, and it's funny you say that because, you know, that that's something that I've done recreationally too. And typically people will take out a rave with close friends, this and that. I can totally relate. Feeling of safeness, feeling of connectedness. And it, I, it's just, I scratch my head because we've dealt with clinics that in order to work here, here's their philosophy, which is really interesting. In order to work here, if we're an IM ketamine clinic, you must experience the treatment so that you can empathize with the patient going through it. And then we meet people who are, you know, that's very medical. Yeah, that's complete. Do you agree with that? That's complete crap. Okay, interesting. Because so, so should I should I call Methodist Hospital for surgery and make sure that I have to go have a knee operation to understand what it's like to recover from a knee operation? I can't explain it to somebody what the recovery what the recovery time is. Must I have cancer to be able to, to help somebody with cancer? I mean, is this science or is this woo woo? Well, that is, that see, that is, that is absolute where you fall into the trap and it's why the medical community doesn't take some of these things seriously because it doesn't mean science. And I'll give you the best example. You're young, you're getting married. God forbid, 15 years from now, 16 years from now, you and you and Sky have a have a nineteen year old Scotty running around South Florida. Trouble, big trouble. and he has and he has yeah troublemaker, and he's having a problem with alcohol use disorder. Okay, must you only call somebody who's ever been sober? Because okay. that's been one that's been one of the problems in addiction treatment is that the people who run the sober clinic, sober housing, sober industry are themselves all addicts. Now let's look. Hold on, let's go a little further. If we understand substance abuse, and we really understand it today, as opposed to how it was really, really presented to us in in the late 30s, 40s, 50s, and through 12 step, is that only a person who's 
the best person to talk about it is somebody who's done it. But then we also know scientifically that most people who have an alcohol use disorder continue to struggle with that the rest of their life. So the chances that your doctor, you're talking to your doctor who's clean, maybe they're not. Maybe they're okay. using while you're talking to them so or, while they're tre- or while they're treating young Scotty and you're paying him $30,000. I think orthopedic, how you're drawing, I mean, alcohol is a little closer of an example, but orthopedic might be a stretch with the knee surgery. But the reason I ask is because some of the spiritual clinics that, that we work with tend to have more success than the strictly science-based clinics. So if they have gone through a session and have done the treatment and understand how they feel and build that emotional connection, are they building better patient retention and a better patient journey through that been there, done that factor? So that's kind of the place I'm coming from because you know we, we see it in the clinics. The more spiritually inclined tend to have a better reviews, better patient outcomes, better retention of patients, things like that. So the people who are getting their opioid recept- addictive receptors tickled like to come back more. Not exactly shocking, is it? So you don't agree with somebody being in, in whatever they'll call this, right? Because it's new. MDMA, a facilitator, a practitioner. You don't agree with them like, oh, they've never needed to do it, to understand it, to be able to coach, to integrate, et cetera. No, I don't, I don't see. I don't see why. I have to be a psychonaut to be able to provide care any more than a physician would need to experience what it's like to go through opioid withdrawal to understand the mechanism of action of, a, of anything to coach a patient to, to get out of withdrawal. And I think what one could do is um, there's so many other things. You could bring in people who have gone through it. I think there are groups for that. I do believe in therapy. I do believe ex- I do believe in clearly communicating experience to the patient, and I'm sure that's beneficial. But I think when we start taking a step forward, and and it's a dangerous step forward, requiring those providers to try it to be able to teach it. I don't know that that doesn't that doesn't jive with me. That that gets a little far from me, you know. Apple, right? Steve Wozniak, one of the founders of Apple, he used to, he, he's written a lot of books and commented on how, why, why Apple was so much cooler and so much better is because they were doing psilocybin. And they used to say that their stuff was so much better because Gates didn't, didn't do anything. Is there any truth to that? You know, that the, they took the psychedelics, expanded their mind and then boom, Apple, trillion, first trillion dollar company. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd ask, you know, I've read books on on Steve Wozniak. He, he swears by it. But have you ever seen what kind of a guy Steve Jobs was? Would you want him to be your neighbor? Well, would you want him to babysit your kid? Would you want him to be your provider? You know, that's a very intimate relationship. I just think that's a slippery slope. And there has been a, if you really get into the, the and I hope a lot of people who are listening to this, really look and learn the history of psychedelics is that it really took root in the area of technology that was emerging right after World War II. And that's when this really when we en- en- entered the, you know, the nuclear era of technology. And a lot of the, the scientists are where it, it, at Harvard and up east and, and out west, Stanford and the likes, are where this became popular. There was a, there was a guy in the computer business, J- the Johnny Appleseed of LSD, and he thought to himself, 
wow, this is such a transformative experience. I feel as though I've seen God. And so you bought a leader, a leader of LSD from Northern Europe and brought it over to the United States with the idea that he was going to dose people. And he was, and he thought, how can I, how can I promote this experience, this spiritual experience? And so what he did is he met with very, very well-connected scientists and politicians and uh, people in the, in Hollywood. And so that he could change the culture. Again, I'm a freedom guy. I believe that in consent is important. And I think that could, it, it's, it's great conversation to have, but I don't know if, uh, I, I don't, I don't personally, I'm uncomfortable with that. Okay. This history lesson that you're giving us. And every time I talk to you, Jack, Jack knows his history like crazy. So he brought the leader back from Europe. Did yeah. he, you said without <clears throat> consent, yeah. did he, without people's consent, start to dose them on LSD. You seen the, uh, have you seen the Hulu show uh, with Nicole Kidman? There's an entire show. There's an entire show t- that's very popular on Hulu where Nicole Kidman plays this spiritual advisor who uninten- who intentionally doses people at her, at her retreat. And then, you know, at, you know, by episode three or four, they're figuring out they're being dosed and they agree and they say they like it. She allows them to leave if they want to. But yeah, man, you can't do that. (laughs) You can't, you can't can't do that. And yeah, he did do that. Um, And uh, Harvard University actually participated that in, in the United States and unintentionally dosed students there without their consent. The United States of America did that in the prison systems of the United States on unsuspecting people. They did it in the military. They performed testing on on the poor, the impoverished. There was a clinic that was run by Frank, Dr. Frank Jolly over in San Francisco where he was experimenting on people up in Haight-Ashbury. Dr. Frank Jolly was also working for the CIA at the time. So... Yeah, we've this, this is again where we where we're talking about. We're now trying to do, you know, that that third wave. We're trying to do this right this time. We did it that way before. We did it in the 50s and the 60s and it failed. So what I hope that we're doing this time is learning from some of those really interesting and and historical uh historical uh um occurrences some of which are really fun, exciting stories to talk about, but I don't want to go back down that road again. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned, excuse me, you mentioned um, with MDMA, you know, the logistics around it, how do they get the, you know, who's going to drive them home, et cetera, et cetera. But then you also mentioned retreats and, you know, we see more of these retreat places popping up, you know, with Ibogaine, for example, having to go to Mexico, et cetera. So with the MDMA coming online in 2024, how do you see uh, the retreat side of the business playing a role into MDMA? It's going to be interesting. And again, I, I don't, I think there's room for everybody in the tent. Mexico, you can go right up the street to here. I'm in Dallas, Texas. Today, I 15 miles from now, I can take you to a, a center that has a, well, they claim to have a license to see, but they, they're under the religious the Religious Exemptions Act, where they're using ayahuasca 
And for, you know, four or $500, you can join their church and go to an ayahuasca ceremony. That's been uh, upheld by the United States Supreme Court since 2007. I know some guys that I really like that are military guys down in Austin, Texas, uh, in particular, a really, really good guy who I think is doing a lot of good for some people with ayahuasca down there. But I quietly say to myself, I think he's got some liability. I wouldn't want that liability. So they opened a church, they got a religious exemption, and now they're serving ayahuasca. So it's it's legal, legal. A a Republican conservative United Supreme Court justice said it was okay. He yeah he wrote he he, he wrote religious exemption. That's right. Native Americans have used it for thousands of years, and as it's it's part of their culture, and that is where a lot of the basis of the spirituality uh, comes from. And we. And so as a result, you can go be a patient there. Oh, not a patient. You can't be a patient there. You can be a member of their church and they have therapists there who spiritually guide you and you're a member of their church. And that's all, that's all over the United States. There's, yeah. you're, you're down in Florida. The Seminoles have them. There's no need to go to Mexico or Peru. It seems like through this conversation we're having here, Jack, there, there's kind of a distinction that the spiritual and the science, and then the science is more CPT code, medical in an office, et cetera. Whereas the spiritual is more, you know, this uh, under grassroot E type, but also cash experience. So, you know, I'm just. Let me, well, let me ask you this question. When I was down in Texas at University of Texas with Dr. Nemiroff, last fall at a at, at a site I'm, I'm active in the in the texas psychedelic community and we were there and a young man made a really good point to doc to the doctor and he said man you're just a big pharma guy you 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 know you don't care about the the spiritual side and the connection you're doing a study with money from guys in the tech industry down at the Dell Medical School. I mean, that's Michael Dell, right? Michael Dell is in Dell Computers. Mm-hmm. So, so again, technology. And so that that's that's who's the big underwriter of of the Dell Medical School. And that's where a lot of the most innovative studies are being done. And so Dr. Nemiroff made the point to tell everybody, hey, I get it, man. You're right. We've got some money that we've raised. We've got federal money coming from the national the government that's matching these things, we're doing studies and we're creating molecules that then will be licensed or purchased by big pharma companies, J&J. And they're going to bring this into the physician offices. And so you're right, we're going to have we're going to have that model of physician offices. And then you and I have a lot of friends who are and colleagues out there and you probably clients who are adverse to that type of care. They are the more spiritual care. And you talk about they're really being successful and they're and they're really buying into it. They're probably in some ways light years ahead of us on that stuff. And they also have, though, a lot of risk because some of what they're doing is off-label. And when you're doing things off-label, it opens you up to a lot of liability and it's all okay. What are some of the liabilities for performing these things off-label? Um, well, if you make a claim about something off-label, the United States government can come and find you 
as a anybody has ever been a, a rep in the pharmaceutical or medical industry on the last day before they get when when you get tr- your job you go to training and the last day of training they usually have somebody who looks very tough and mean and comes in and scares the living hell out of you to tell you that these are all the 15 things that you ever say you're going to get fired and they're not kidding you will get fired at johnson and johnson like that because the fines are substantial they're millions of dollars so if you tell somebody something as a non-licensed physician an md or a do they're allowed or, or a nurse they're allowed to say things that are off label you and i if we're selling something can't um, because we're not licensed and so sale that includes sales reps and and the best ones are all trained really well but again i have some friends in the industry and i talk candidly with them i'm like you know you're kind of saying that this is this is curing ptsd it's curing? What does that mean? And isn't that a bit aggressive? Oh, it's the best and it's all this. And, you know, my wife and I also do it, you know, five or six times a year. I'm like, that's okay for, I think, a certain segment of the society. You know, there's going to be a certain segment of society that are going to buy into that. And I know friends of mine and business people and very successful people who, who support that world. But when we take this stuff mainstream, we're going to have to adhere again to the Western model. Right. Western model. The Western model has some rules. I'm all about having another podcast about tweaking some of those Western model rules because I think some of them are wrong. But we do have rules that we have to play it. Yeah, it sounds like there needs to be sort of uh, some sort of middle ground between the spiritual. You use the term woo woo, which I use sometimes, but the very spiritual, you know, people out there using these molecules and, and treatments, ketamine, MDMA. And then the more medical CPT code route, like how can we still maintain the effect and the spirituality and the magic of the psychedelics, but then still drive mass adoption? Well, well, hold on. Let me, let me, let me, so I'm clear and I don't get trade differently than I really am on myself. Myself, I think that, I think for a certain amount of people that spiritual connection is very helpful. So much so that, again, I'm going to inform some, I'm a bit of a historian, as you know. The founder of AA, Bill W. Or if if you don't know his story with psychedelics, is that he did psychedelics. And in fact, as he traveled to many hospitals, and that's where you got treated oftentimes prior to AA in the 1930s and 20s, you'd usually go to mostly like Catholic hospitals or non-for-profit places, and some nuns would take care of you who were who are just out of the goodness of their own heart. And and if you were a really heavy drinker back in those days you're you know what 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 would kill you then and still kill you now is the withdrawal effects of alcohol that's withdrawal alcohol withdrawal is a very serious medical condition and at one particular place up east he got this little concoction this little tea and that tea had some magic mushrooms in it unbeknownst to him unbeknownst to him and potentially nobody really knows unbeknownst even maybe to the to the sweet nuns up there they concocted a little psychedelic you know, drinky drink. Wow. And when he had it, and and so Bill, Bill is an interesting figure. Um, and it's and the story of Bill is not told a lot. And the story that we know is not the true story. This what I'm gonna tell you is true. Is as he was going through withdrawal, which again I emphasize is very dangerous, he's sweating profusely, he's shaking, and then he has this profound change. He thinks I should connect all the alcoholics of the world together. Maybe I should write a book. And he all of a sudden has this big thought. 
And he undergoes what he later describes as a transformative spiritual meeting with God. And that is why he started AA. Let's look at that. He goes in advance. He doesn't know it at the time. Then he goes a few years later. He's suffering from depression and he's struggling to not drink. He's, as they call it in the 12 step, he's white knuckling. He can't, he's very unhappy. Prior to this, he was a very successful business person, a great sales guy, made a lot of money. And then through the course of his drinking and also the depression, um, he lost everything. And so as he started to recover his life and putting his life back together, he still struggled with depression greatly. And so he came across a guy named Adolis Huxley, who was an Oxford author, came from a very wealthy family in England. And Adolis introduced him to psychedelics and LSD. And upon doing that, it was very similar to that tea that he had with the nuns. And that changed his life. And that helped with his it, with his depression. He also started doing niacin, which is B3, which is a compound that's made. Bill Scott was so excited about this that that's when they first started doing studies at Harvard on alcohol use disorder. And they put a lot, there's a lot of published studies that you can read about online or go to chat GPT or whatever anybody, any of the listeners want to see and what the results were in the in the late 40s and 50s of people who were using psilocybin and having strong discontinuation alcohol use, which is why MAPS is studying psilocybin currently today for alcohol use disorder. And it is believed to be that people, people kind of have this experience where they see themselves as they really are. And if we want to call that spiritual, that's fine. But that is enough to see maybe some of the damage they're doing to themselves and those their loved ones and that they want to make a change in their life. Well, it's and funny so, you say that because I was speaking with someone once and and this person owns a clinic and um, they struggled with addiction. And in their psychedelic trip one time, he he said, I realized that I am God and you are God and we're all God and we're all connected. And every time I do drink alcohol or do drugs, it's harming God, and I don't want to do that any any longer. So, this is great stuff, Zach. Yeah, no, I I think it's I think it's really I think it's really important, and I think we could. When you're paying, here here's the thing, man. You're paying with your United States Medicare card. You got to be really careful about spirituality and religious because that's taxpayer totally. money, taxpayer totally. money. So that's where a lot of these, or if you're getting your Blue Cross card from American Airlines, and that is. Got a lot of people here in Dallas, Texas from different backgrounds and beliefs. Not up in some of those t- are not spiritual at all. And so I'd like to think that if it is science, as Dr. Talk has taught me, my mentor and, and, and our chief medical officer, if it's science, it's science. And if, if there's an intersection of science and spirituality, that's okay. That's okay. I just think some of our friends who are on the spiritual side, oftentimes error in forgetting about the science. Jack, we're out of time for today, but will you come back on the show and can we talk yeah. more about this? Absolutely. Love to, Scott. What, what are we going to talk about next time? Oh, man, next time we've got so much to talk about. Let's, let's, let's talk about next time a little more about interventional psychiatry and why it needs to evolve 
and and maybe you know what Dr. Taka talks about is the um, the misadventures of patients in in going and seeing psychiatrists. And why it's so hard? Why it's so hard to get help? And how long it really takes? We live in a world where people want they're they're stuck. They didn't get there overnight, but why they want to get out of the ditch quick? And the the clinicians want to get them out of there, but there's so many different mitigating factors, and it's so hard to be honest with a clinician all at one time. The that that oftentimes it takes a long time for people to recover, and uh, I think the more people understand that, maybe that maybe we could help them understand the importance of that relationship with their provider and and being honest being the quicker you're honest with yourself and with that provider the better better chance you have of feeling better and what a way to tie it all up because spirituality or excuse me psychedelics can help to, with that radical self-honesty absolutely so. man absolutely and i and i hope they do i really do i'm rooting for it i think it will be great and that's why i'm active in the psychedelic community here in texas and very hopeful well, Jack, thank you so much for being here today. Jack Cavanaugh, everybody, Restore Brain out in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and knowledge with us and look forward to speaking with you next time. Scott, thanks for the opportunity and thanks for all the work you do in putting this podcast together. And I wish you the best and uh, glad to be a participant. Awesome. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.